0: My name is Kristen Hovitt, and welcome to the Other Autism Podcast. I'm a research communications professional and Master of Health Studies student. I was diagnosed with level one autism in my 30s, and I also live with health conditions that are often co occurring alongside autism. The Other Autism is a place to explore late diagnosed autism, discuss the latest in autism research, help dispel myths and stereotypes about autism and autistic people, and more. If you're autistic or wondering if you might be, I'm hoping this podcast helps you to feel more informed and less alone. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Dodd, a therapist in Portland, Oregon. Jennifer is a late diagnosed autistic individual and an ADHDer, specifically diagnosed with the inattentive type of ADHD. Jennifer is the owner of the Embodied Life Therapy Center and works hard to make the field of therapy more neurodiversity-affirming. Interesting little bit of backstory. Jennifer and I initially connected several years ago. I don't recall exactly how we met. It was definitely online. It might have been on a forum about HSP because we did initially connect over HSP, which is the highly sensitive person trait. And I've done an episode all about HSP, and how I think it's actually describing level one autism. And if you haven't listened yet, that is the October 15th, 2022 episode called Highly Sensitive Person, HSP, or Autistic. So in that space of time, completely separately and without knowing, I was diagnosed as autistic and Jennifer was diagnosed as autistic. Jennifer was doing some searching online one day, and my name came up and she discovered that way that I'd been diagnosed as autistic. So we've made this, you know, reconnection. First connecting is, oh yeah, you're a fellow HSP and now it's as a fellow autistic. Please say hello to my guest for today, Jennifer Dodd. Yeah, my name is Jennifer Dodd. I'm a
1: therapist in Portland, Oregon, neurodivergent.
0: What led you to considering that you might be autistic and an adhd
1: It didn't come from me. I hear a lot of stories of people who are like sort of on this journey of discovering themselves and that was not mine at all. I have a friend, a therapist friend who we had been meeting on Zoom and we would talk about therapy stuff and practice and info dump apparently is what we were doing a lot of and, um, you know, the friendship had come out of that time. And one day it was, it had to be like a year or so into this regular meeting. And she kind of came out with just like, so I've been like going through the diagnostic process and discovering that I'm autistic. And I was just like, oh, wow. (laughs) It was sort of surprising. And during that conversation, she sort of gently started to say things like, well, have you ever done any of the online tests? You know, and I was like, no, but you know, like, it sounds like interesting. And and then she started to talk about some of the things that I just didn't know about autism. And I was like surprised and we just got in this conversation. And then afterwards I went on and I did like the rads and the cat cue. And from there I was like, it was just like a lot of realization coming up. And I, then I went and got a formal diagnosis. So that's, that was kind of how my process went. And she had said like, she's like, I suspected for a while now that you might be autistic when I like started to discover it myself. And I was just like, wow.
0: And then did ADHD come with that then?
1: So the ADHD came later. I was just going down deep dive into the autism, and she also had been diagnosed as a you know, she's an ADHD. My wife is an ADHD. And I'm not sure where it came up. I started to learn, like, about how common they actually are diagnosed together. And listening to the um, Neurodivergent Women podcast and learning about ADHD as well. And then I was started to like open up that part of it. And I had the inattentive type. So it's maybe some of the less obvious symptoms, we'll say, that people might not pick up or they might call anxiety. But yeah, when I did my formal diagnosis, I was like, and ADHD might be a part of it. I have a lot of siblings who I suspect and family members. And so, yeah, I had the dual... um, autism and ADHD diagnosis.
0: How does being neurodivergent impact your work as a therapist?
1: So much. Actually, I've done some writing recently about how neurodivergent folks make great therapists. And I think there's a lot of us who don't know that we are, you know, maybe high masking, autistic. The high empathy is a big one for me. It's almost like a, like a spidey sense, like you like feel or sense in your body what's going on with other people. And you just kind of have this knowing our sensitivity. I think that allows us to really connect deeply with other people, curiosity, deep curiosity and like our field of study. If that's part of something that we're really into, like our special interests, then we will like deep dive and do the research. And I mean, I think there's so many qualities
0: and i think it it surprises people because there's i always come back to this but it's such a huge thing like people assume that autistic people don't have empathy and then they end up with a therapist that's autistic so <laughs> there's a lot of us there's a lot of us <laughs> but i i've noticed that there's a lot of therapists that are they're like writing to me and they're like i'm afraid to disclose totally. this because people might judge me or not come to me but i think that they'd probably be surprised if they did disclose how much like new people and clients they would actually get.
1: Totally. Yeah. And that's understandable. Our field has a lot of, a long way to go still. And it has a not so great history of how we've treated, you know, autistic folks. So it makes sense that there's stigma and like, we also need to like learn more about what this really is and what it's really like so that folks aren't afraid to come out with it. There's so many clients too that are neurodivergent I've discovered. I'm asking, there's a, you know, that was a big part of what I learned is like, if you have folks who are coming in for years, working on their trauma history and still coming in for years, like something still not quite right, like landing, you might be dealing with someone who's, I'm asking, neurodivergent and don't know it. You don't know it. And, you know, we need to really be making some huge change in the field
0: for those folks. Mm-hmm. And also I saw on your website that you're LGBTQIA plus affirming. There's a lot of overlap there as well.
1: Big time. I was in a training and the trainer said that trans folks is like 50% of trans folks are also autistic. Almost like if you are working with someone who's trans, like might as well do some assessment as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, you know, those are big numbers.
0: I heard that about eating disorders as well because there's a lot of people with eating disorders that haven't been diagnosed as autistic or any other neurodivergent diagnoses. So if they are, you know, in a eating disorder clinic, they should also be assessed if they haven't already. been. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Especially when, you know, there's food sensitivities that might look like an eating disorder. And so, you know, we really need to get better at identifying what we're talking about.
0: Totally. Yeah. So to get back to your diagnoses, how did you initially feel about your diagnoses and have your feelings changed over time it's
1: interesting because i hadn't recognized how positive a viewpoint i had but when i like realized like oh you're autistic that's what this is it was just like i have like a really loving response to it and really accepting and a lot of relief right away i was just like oh this is super great it's wonderful You know, kind of been through this with a lot of my clients now who um, have started to explore based on this domino effect of me exploring my identities. And I just keep watching adults who start to explore this and have just like this beautiful response to it of like, this is wonderful. This is who I am. I wouldn't change it. I'm so relieved to like now know how to identify this. And that was my initial response. And I would say for the most part, I still feel that way. But there's other things that come up around grieving. Oh, I'm not neurotypical. And so like the ways in which I've always pushed myself, someday I'm going to have enough whatever to do all the things in the same way. And I now realize, nope, you know, as a neurodivergent person, you actually do need to recharge as much as you do. That's never going to change, right? Like that's not going to become something that's fixable. So accepting limitations as well.
0: And I know as a therapist, you must like, you must carry a lot of things that other people bring to you, obviously. So I know that's Mm -hmm. a big thing for autistic people. So what sorts of strategies have you had to develop to be able to go through life with that, holding those things?
1: Right. I mean, I'm a human. I'm still working on that. I really have learned the traditional self-care that I've been taught is not the same self-care I need. And the same with other neurodivergent folks. And so I've started to learn, like, what does that look like? Like, I used to have a lot of shame around how much I would be into my special interests. And now I'm like, oh, that's really regulating for me. And so now I just kind of lean into it without the shame, right? Now that I know what this is, and it grounds me, I know now that I do really need to take time away to recharge. Like, I cannot people all day, every day, like I have pushed myself, because that just wears me out. I have changed my schedule and things like that to allow for more recharge time. And yeah, also just like recognizing the awareness around you're taking in a lot of other people's stuff. You got to be aware of that and you have to not let it sit there. And like, also I have been in therapy forever and work through my stuff. So medications that I need, I take with no you know, shame. Yeah. Take
0: care of myself. When you were in training for counseling psychology, did you recall learning about neurodivergent identities? I have
1: never learned anything about neurodivergent identities until I started down this path. And I'm someone who has, after grad school, I went into training programs that were years out of, you know, like um, sensory motors, like two years. NARM is a um, neuro relational model for complex traumas, two years, IFS, you know, I've really been in my training programs outside of graduate school, nothing. Recently, I've started to see a little, a little bit more talking about it in my field. But I've also like put myself into like more neurodivergent affirming spaces as well. So, um, so many of the people we're serving are neurodivergent and like, we don't learn about that, like at all.
0: I recall because I was going into counseling psych originally and I kind of changed direction. But I remember when we covered autism, it was, you know, the traditional, the very, very traditional presentation. You're shown videos of like someone with, I don't know what would be called level three autism now with, you know, various other co occurring conditions as well. So that's, that was my perception of autism. Yeah.
1: And I'm embarrassed to say, like, as much training as I've had in like therapy is one of my special interests, you know, psychology. So it's like I've been deep into this world forever and I still had absolutely the the same stereotype in my head. Right. I had to like learn so much and, I was really surprised by that. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I literally know nothing other than the same stereotypes <laughs> that like everyone else. Everyone has, else. You know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Lots of mm-hmm. unlearning.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so has anything changed for you after being diagnosed? I know we kind of touched on that.
1: Well, my friend who discovered this herself and then shared with me and she had discovered it from other friends. We've talked about this, like this domino effect in our lives, because I've shared with some family members now who've been diagnosed, who've discovered. I've shared with friends who have been diagnosed. It's amazing how many people I'm surrounded by who are neurodivergent. My wife was diagnosed. She's an adhd She's been talking with her family and friends, and then my clients, and then their friends and family. It's just been this ripple effect out into the world of discovering, which has been really kind of beautiful to see. But other than that, I mean, I've gotten really into learning more about neurodivergence. I started training on how to diagnose, doing like the MIG does, and I have started getting consultation with an ADHD psychologist and how to make my practice more affirming, as well as like my own personal life. done a lot of training and neurodivergent affirming therapy and how to support folks. And it's become like a real passion trajectory in my field that I'm really excited about. So it's changed a lot.
0: And can you explain for listeners? I don't know if I've covered this term before, but out what did you say? ADHD. -er. ADHD? Yeah,
1: that's our own little special term when you're autistic and ADHD. -er. So it's um, the AD is like the autistic, and then the ADHD, the ADHD. -er.
0: And when you've told others, so friends, family who aren't neurodivergent about your diagnoses, what have their responses been? A mix.
1: My mom's was one of the more surprising ones. She was very like teary and like, wow, like I finally made sense to her in a way that I had never, you know, since I was a child. And she would tell me stories of when I was a kid. If I had like elastic around my like, you know, my wrists or something, I would come to her and say things like, I can't breathe (laughs) (laughs) because the shirt was too tight on my wrist. And so she was just recalling like how she said she would always just see my wheels in my head, always going. And she didn't quite understand, you know, that about me, my constant questions. Um, it was kind of really affirming to hear from her and see her response of like, yeah, this really makes sense. <laughs> A lot of people were just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I have had friends that are like, what what are you talking about? Like, who told you that? And I'm like, well, the psychologist who evaluated me and gave me this diagnosis, like, okay, whatever, you know, um, so some people obviously have more of that stereotypical. So it's hard, you know, for folks who might be wanting to come out to people in their life, I would say, make sure you're ready for a mixed response, because you don't know what you're going to get. And it's a strange thing, To tell someone you're autistic and then to basically say, no, you're not, right? It's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a weird phenomenon in our society. I I don't know if you've had that that, that experience. I've heard other people talk about it, but it's very strange.
0: Yeah, or people say, I have had, we're all a little bit autistic. That was one. And you can always tell mm-hmm. by the response, whether usually whether the person's neurodivergent themselves, it seems mm-hmm. like the people who aren't are going to have the more surprising responses usually. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, the friend who was like, no, you're not. I'm very certain she is autistic.
0: Interesting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's some denial, maybe.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I've had some people just kind of like disappear, just off the face of the planet. So, oh wow, without a response, just kind of like, yeah, yeah not many, but you know, <laughs> side acquaintances, I guess.
1: <laughs> they they got
0: scared of the altar. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> run away from it. <laughs> Truly terrifying. <laughs> I know some people have explained to me those who have the dual diagnosis that they kind of the two diagnoses kind of compete. <laughs> Oh, yeah. do you see that in yourself or do they work together in certain ways really well?
1: Yeah, it's fun. This is <laughs> another fun little special interest. It's become like the dual diagnosis because it's wild. Yeah, sometimes it they really do like not get along very well. and I, I speak for them. I'm also trained in IFS if you're familiar with like different parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. So I have that background. I'll be like, today, autism was like, blah, blah, blah. But ADHD was like, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) But it feels like that inside sometimes. Like my autistic side, like really wants to like organize and plan and be like two hours early and very, very maybe type A looking. And then in the very same human, I'm like also at an airport running to catch the plane because something came up and I forgot something or, you know, and it's like, how does this exist in the same person? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's confusing for other people sometimes because they'll see like a side of you and like, oh, you're so put together and you're so organized and you're so, and then you don't feel quite that way all the time because you're also like, can't find your keys or um, you forget to do basic, basic things. And I don't know, it's, it's weird. But I think they also can complement each other too in a strange way sometimes. And I'm still learning a lot about, you know, how they they live together. But I think it's a fascinating, definitely a fascinating neurotypes.
0: And can you explain for listeners what the parts you mentioned are the IFS?
1: Yes. I want to make sure that people know that I'm not saying like I have an autistic part or an right, autistic right. part. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I am autistic. All of my parts are autistic. Right. <laughs> All of my parts are ADHD. Yeah, yeah. But parts of the self is like in IFS, you're not just like this one singular being you might have like part of you has this need to fit in in, in the world and another part of you really likes solitary and how do you like work with seemingly different aspects of yourself that have different needs or wants and so that's kind of like the IFS work i think of the autism and ADHD sometimes like that not that you know they are parts but like autism has different needs than ADHD i noticed spring just happened overnight in portland and ADHD seemed to like wake up, <laughs> you know, like autism was okay in the winter, just like doing what we do life as it is and kind of hibernating, but like spring happened and ADHD is like, we have a lot of stuff in the yard to take care of. And like this hyper focus of taking care of it wakes me up and like gets me going every day that I have free time.
0: Someone who is really important to me, um, they work in the autism space. And they said that some people that they work with that also have been diagnosed with ADHD, once they are medicated for ADHD, um, it's almost like their autistic traits kind of sometimes come out more.
1: It makes sense, right? I've heard that like ADHD can mask the autism. So like If I'm in an environment that socially I would be kind of uncomfortable in, but the ADHD is sort of distracted and distracting me or like picking up bits of conversation that I can kind of jump into, then maybe the difficult with like social interactions and of autism is sort of dulled a bit. And this is often a reason that a lot of, I don't want to gender too much, but there's the female phenotype that they call I think when you have the two, I've heard it's harder to diagnose because they sort of mask each other in that way. And it makes it complicated to know because you're like, well, <laughs> I have these autistic traits, but also, you know, there's this other ways in which I'm not like that it can be a little confusing.
0: I've also heard that a lot of those with ADHD are more of the sensory seeker types. So that's another thing I think that kind of mess, And I have that, too. I'm more of like loud concerts. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have mm-hmm. to recuperate for a week after. Yes. But I definitely have that. Whereas, you know, other autistic folks I know, they're just like, never, I will never go to a concert. I'm just like, how? <laughs> right. So. In this course that I'm in, it's called um,
1: Neurodivergent Affirming Clinicians it's through Cascadia. It's really great. They talk about being ADHD forward or autistic forward. And some people tend towards that. Like my wife was first diagnosed as an adhd and she's very ADHD-forward. And we've decided that among the two of us, the small little case study of the two of us, I am more of like an autistic-forward person. Like my autistic traits are much more apparent than my ADHD traits. I have the inattentive ADHD, so that makes sense to me.
0: What was school like for you Mm.
1: as undiagnosed? I was a very, very sensitive child very quiet. I noticed that when I discovered my neurodivergence, I stopped being as quiet a person as I used to be. And maybe that was a big part of my masking is like always watching other people and kind of holding back. But yeah, I felt very sensitive as a child and kind of like, I see myself in my mind's eye of like always observing what's happening around me and feeling kind of like, I don't quite get it, but I want to learn it. You know, like it's, it's like almost like a challenge or something that I'm trying to make sense of. I think I was very curious as a child, but I got called shy. I got called sensitive a lot. I can recall times where having to focus on homework was so hard. There's a lot of shame in that too. I think when you struggle with that sort of thing, you start to think that maybe you're not as smart, but then you are like excelling in other ways. Everyone tells you like, you're such a curious person. You're always thinking, you're always analyzing. So you know that you do have some of those qualities. It was uh, confusing and I didn't have the support. You know, I'm a kid in the 80s. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. But I certainly didn't have the support of adults in my life to go, hmm, what's going on with this kid? You know, I think I just internalized more of that. Like, what's wrong with this kid kind of? But I also think that I was such a high masker. And so in in a lot of ways, I just kind of, I did okay. You know, I found, friends found me. Were you ever bullied for the
0: differences?
1: A little bit. I think that I was more of the like, hide under the radar, kind of like never want to be a part of the spotlight. So I like offset some of that bullying, but I did get bullied and made fun of. I think also my sensitivity probably helped. They're not going to like push this little girl too, too much. My wife said, and you were so cute. You know, maybe, maybe that helped a little bit, like kind of like shy and cute. And, but yeah, I, I can definitely recall being picked on and excluded, and definitely like the feeling of like, you're different for sure. Don't know why, but girls are so, neurotypical girls are so like touchy to each other and like huggy and like they know how to do that be together in that way. And I always felt like I'm trying, but I'm not quite gelling in the same way. Something's not, I don't have something that they have to know how to do that or to like, it's not innate for me. Now I understand why, but you know, that's confusing for a kid. Why don't I know how to quite do what other girls know how to do together in that natural, seemingly easy way with each other. Do you wish you'd been diagnosed as a child? I saw that question. Initially, I was like. Yes. But then I said, no. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And the no is because I'm not sure it would have been dealt with in the way that would have been best for me. Like the stuff I've heard about folks who've gone through ABA and things like that is so traumatizing. The risk of having gone that route, especially in like the 80s, seems so much scarier to me than like masking, compensating, not knowing but still figuring it out somehow <laughs> mm, totally. into adulthood where it was safe for me to discover this in a perfect world. Sure. But I didn't come in a perfect world. So
0: my answer would be no. Yeah. Same. I think looking back, cause I was also, you know, eighties, nineties, and if I'd been diagnosed, they'd probably put me in a special class or something or a different school maybe. And it would have been probably more traumatizing in the long run. And also the stigma back then too, especially, I think it might've
1: not felt so great.
0: I did struggle with math. I was really good at it up to a certain grade. And when it got very, I don't know, abstract, I had more trouble. So I guess, what do they call it? Dyscalcula or whatever it's called. I think I have that. It was never, you know, diagnosed or anything, but I definitely, like, I feel like I relate almost- with that. Yeah, it, it's almost like I feel like I could have been maybe even, you know, in the gifted classes, but because of the issues mm-hmm. with math, colored everything else.
1: It's funny. I remember teachers literally like that never got out of my head. Teachers would say, Jennifer, you were looking way too deep into this. It's not <laughs> as deep as you. it's right here. It's more obvious than you're making right. this problem. Totally. And I just didn't know how to like not do that. And this was in high school when, you know, they were saying that to me. So it's like, I always struggled in that way. Bottom-up thinking, right? Have you looked into like how autistic people tend to have more of like that bottom-up thinking or processing?
0: I think a little bit, like in terms of like what they focus on or the type Mm -hmm. of details, like, yes, definitely. I feel like, you know, with math, there was like trying to, if I saw shapes, like I was really good at geometry because i could <laughs> see it visually i'm yes. very very visual and spatial yes. so put numbers with things objects yes got it when it's you know otherwise i'm like trying to find some magic formula or something right? it's like no mm-hmm. it's just do this thing so mm-hmm. i never quite got it but anyway
1: makes perfect sense yeah so like with the bottom up processing that tends to me more autistic folks have is like, we see like every single detail before we come to like an explanation of what that means. Whereas bottom down, which is more typical with like neurotypical thinkers is like, they can kind of see like the forest, the trees, they can kind of see a bigger picture and they just need like a handful of details or evidence to support that. And they can just go with that. They're just comfortable (laughs) with (laughs) that. Incredible. (laughs) It's like, moving on, like we figured this out, but we get a little bit too caught up in some of the details or like words, which can be slow at first, but eventually it's fine.
0: Yeah. And that also makes me think like my last podcast episode, I was interviewing a neurotypical who works in the autism space. and we talked about the switching subjects. Like she has asked folks she works with to please let her know when they're going to change the subject. But like, for me, honestly, I don't see it as a, like I can, if I notice it as this is like a neurotypical subject change, (laughs) Um, then I can let them know. But for me, it's like, they all connect. So it's not changing mm-hmm. the subject in my head. It's this mm-hmm. follows directly from this obvious. Interesting. <laughs> so,
1: Interesting.
0: So I thought of that. It's like, if I can be aware, sure, I'll let you know, but I'm usually not that it's a subject change <laughs> to you. So yeah. Totally. But get I think that. it, yeah. yeah, I think it has to do with like we're seeing the whole, all the details and we're connecting them in our head constantly. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. which makes it kind of exhausting for us when we're communicating because we like take the words apart a little bit too to like break them down more in a sentence we're doing that on, on the inside mm-hmm. whereas like they can take the whole string of words and just get the meaning really quickly and move yeah. on right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah amazing
1: creatures i know
0: <laughs> it's <cycle>. amazing <laughs> very interesting indeed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm recognizing the the look I get like in Zoom meetings because I can see everyone's face. It's like I'll bring something up and they're just like, what? <laughs> 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 because uh-huh, it's like, uh-huh. it's clearly inspired by something that's been said, but no one else has recognized mm-hmm, that. So.
1: Mm-hmm. But you're a your little like, pattern recognition yeah. is still like carrying it through.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll have to explain it. Like, oh, I see. You're connected yeah. to this, to yeah. like
1: everything I've ever said. Okay.
0: Got it. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what types of supports do you actually wish you'd had growing up? If you like could, you know, wave a magic wand or something.
1: Well, I'm fairly certain that I come from a long line of undiagnosed neurodivergent folks. Some of the family I've come from who would never accept it probably are very obviously autistic ADHDers. I wish they had come to uh, understanding and acceptance of their neurodivergence and been able to compassionately help me understand mine rather than I think. Something someone said to me in a consultation around this, because when I'm getting consultation, like I have a lot of folks coming in with trauma histories, childhood trauma, like that's a big piece of the work I do. And now we're adding in this neurodivergence. And how do we make sense of all of this now, right? My consultant, her name is Megan Anna Neff. She does a lot of work in this field, but she said undiagnosed neurodivergence can look like very traumatizing parenting. And that just like really landed for me so much of like, you know, if you don't understand what's going on with yourself, you know, and then you see these qualities in your kids, the sensitivity or the struggles with social struggles or whatever it is, you might not be so compassionate. You know, you might want to toughen them up or like help them push past it. Right. I really just wish that I I had, you know, come from a different family that would have accepted and helped me understand and more curiosity from like the adults around me. What's going on with this kid? Maybe got down on my level a little bit and like try to see the world from my eyes rather than just kind of like dismissive or whatever. And then from there, probably, you know, more support in school. I would get so overwhelmed in school and just felt sick to my stomach, not knowing why. I had a lot of sensory sensitivities around. I mean, I still do because you don't, you don't shake that, you know, you don't get rid of that if you're autistic. It's not something that gets habituated. But not knowing that like really bright lights is making me feel so overwhelmed, not understanding that and then just being like, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why am I in this environment, this loud and this bright and I feel so unmoored. I can't think straight, not understanding those things. I would have loved to just had someone help me understand all of that.
0: Now with masking and unmasking, is that something you consciously try to do or do you use masking in certain scenarios consciously? Just a side note, when I took the Cat CATQ,
1: for folks who don't know, that's the masking assessment. That was the one that just like blew my mind. I will forever have love for the Cat CATQ for that reason. It just like opened up everything for me. I have the privilege of working from home. And I'm the boss and I get to set my schedule and work with the clients I want to work with. I also have enough age and experience that's giving me a place in my field where I can be more myself. And so, you know, I'm out to my clients and the people I supervise and things like that. That allows me to not have to mask as much. I can't imagine if I was in like corporate America or something. And I have a lot of clients who do have to work in those spaces and have to mask like they have to do it right? They don't have an option. So I feel very lucky that there's so much of my life that I can unmask in. My home is a very safe place for that. And I've worked hard to make sure it's a very comfortable, safe place for that. I think a lot of us high masking, autistic, ADHD, whatever neurodivergent folks create little ecosystems for ourselves. Don't always have to go out. We can avoid it to some extent. There's certainly situations where I show up and I masking just sort of is a natural, like just takes over kind of thing. But I'm working through that in therapy too. Like I want to be less
0: automatic about it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what are some differences between masking and unmasking for you? I talk a lot more. That's a big one.
1: I've done a lot of trauma work my whole life. But when I discovered this, it was suddenly like I just had this image of this little me who was sensitive and neurodivergent and didn't know it. And once I like discovered that, I suddenly became so protective of myself. I'm looking out for myself now and my neurodivergent self. I think a lot of the shame lifted too. So I can be more myself. You know, before discovering this, I would go into every environment, every new environment and like just quiet and like reading everything around me, reading the dynamics, reading the room, that's a lot of energy and focus. And I would always be confused. Like people just walk in and start talking and interacting. And like, how do you do that? <laughs> Knowing that I like maybe do it a little less, you know, if I'm a little bit weird, like that's okay because I'm autistic and autistic is great.
0: I've been thinking about it more because I'm planning an episode on, you know, masking, unmasking. And I felt like I had to wait a bit because I'm still processing what that means for me because I've you know, late diagnosed, we often have to ask ourselves, what is masking? What is unmasking? What is myself, you know, in there somehow? And like, so existential, it totally, yeah. (laughs) Who, who am I? -hmm. Um, And one thing I've, you know, definitely come to terms with or had to is like, I'm a huge people pleaser. So it shows up in, you know, when I'm interacting with neurotypicals, like I'll try to control their emotional state Mm and perception. Yeah. So they're comfortable, but I'm also thinking like, it's not just, you know, doing that. It's, it's also because I feel their energy. Like we were talking about like that empathy part. And if I've messed up and they're displeased, I feel it. And it brings my energy down. It brings everyone's energy down. So like, if I put in a little masking, it goes so far in like keeping everyone's emotional states chill and everyone kind of interacting well. So in that way, it's cool to see that I can have control over it in some way.
1: That's a like really positive way to look at it. I very much relate to that people pleasing, but like I've been trying to also establish a different relationship to people pleasing because I noticed that I have a lot of judgment towards myself for it. So I like to hear like that perspective that you can use it in a mindful way too.
0: It can be a positive thing. I judge myself too, and like you know, where where's yourself in this? Like you're doing this, and it's so about the other person. But it actually, if I really analyze it, it is for me too, because like I said, it's like keeping the safe space for both of us, basically, or whoever's interacting at that time.
1: Yeah, and for people who don't understand empathizing in a hypersensitive, hyper empathetic way, is like you do feel like everything around you. You're like a sponge it is hard to take in all of everyone's emotional responses as well as all the sensory stuff that's happening in the room. It's just like, it builds you. And then, you know, that can be too much.
0: Especially if it's like negative, like if you see their face drop and you're like, oh crap, (laughs) like you mad at me, what did I do? (laughs) Uh Mm -hmm. And then you have to process that on top of everything else. So what are your top three autistic traits that you love the most? I like my curiosity a lot.
1: That feels like such a gift to me. Like, no matter what happens in life, where I go, what I do, what's happening in the world, I know I have that within me, like that curiosity, and that will always keep me interested and engaged in the world. And, you know, my inner life is rich for that reason. Always wanting to learn. And, like, I think my empathy is another one, even though it can be painful to have so much taking in. It's also like, I can connect so deeply with other people and I love to hear other people's love to hear people's stories. I love deep conversations with, I'm not good at small talk. I don't like small talk. I don't know how to do it very well. It bores me too. Like I don't, I don't care about it, which makes a great quality for a therapist. I get to like hear and connect in this deep way. So I love that. It makes life rich. They say that autistic folks, ADHDers, because of our like hyper-focus, we actually get into flow states like so much more often, which is such a great thing to have access to. I can just like listen to music and be so immersed deeply on like every level. And I didn't realize that, you know, not everyone experiences sensory information, can experience it in that like deep, deep way. Which again, when it's like life is stressful or if it's too much or if it's out of your control to, you know, sensory information can be very painful too. But when it feels good, it's like
0: bliss. And the same question for ADHD, top three ADHD traits.
1: I appreciate ADHD for its creativity. It can have your mind exploring everything, every option, every possibility, which can feel really good sometimes really like enthusiasm. I appreciate the initiation, you know, it can get me like going on new projects and like really, really driven. I've started my private practice. I've made a group practice. Like I really go after the things I want. I think a lot of that ADHD can be that. And then also like the hyper focus as well. You can get really, really into something. And like, while it has its downsides, like forgetting to eat and drink water (laughs) on a hot day that you have to be mindful of, but also you can get really into like a project or something and just lose that time. It can be kind of great too. I think a lot of neurodivergent folks really appreciate their neurodivergent traits from what I've been conversating with folks, like a deep
0: love for those things. I would never want to have life without these things especially understanding it more. It's like, don't, do not take it away from me ever.
1: Right. And also like, by the way, society, you need all types of people to like make a great society. And it was good enough for like Beethoven and Einstein. Good enough for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) What is a myth or stereotype about autism or autistic people that bothers you the most? Oh, so many. Definitely the empathy
1: thing is my least favorite. I think it probably creates some of the most stigma and it's used to dehumanize us. Like, oh, there's no empathy. And we don't want to get too much into the history of like Asperger's and all the people who started ABA who literally have seen autistic people as not human because of this, this myth that has absolutely no credible like evidence to support it. And also I'm surrounded by autistic folks who have some of the most (laughs) empathy And sensitivity and care and concern and love and compassion for other people and animals and the environment and like so many, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's not true. It's like so opposite of the truth. And that that one is definitely the one I think I have the most passion for.
0: That's the same for me. I always talk about the empathy one. I have had a guest say that they don't feel that they have empathy. And so for them, they think they're in line with that sort of traditional concept. So, I I mean, that could be very much true for that person. Uh, It could also be related to, I guess, trauma or just kind of internalized concepts of themselves being told that. I'm not sure. I don't want to take away from their story. Or like having to
1: shut it down because it's too much empathy. Yeah. Like we said before, like too much empathy can be really, really painful Mm -hmm. to take in so much of other people's emotions and sensory information. Of course you want to shut it down somewhat or like numb it out some, so that can be part of it. Maybe there's a possibility that you can be hyper empathetic and hypo empathetic.
0: For me, it can be delayed just because it's so much. Oh, that's a big piece. Like I need
1: to go into a quiet room a lot of the time with like low lights and like really just sit there by myself to figure out what I'm feeling. And I've heard that for people that are very like highly empathetic that we don't always have access to what's inside of us. We're taking in everything in the environment, but then they're like, well, what do you want to eat? Like, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. I need to go and be in a quiet space to like check in with what's happening inside of me. That makes perfect sense to me.
0: And the same question for ADHD in regards to a myth or stereotype.
1: All the deficit talk, I cannot stand all the deficit talk in the DSM around either one. It's not that you don't have focus or that you're just constantly distracted. That is not true. Your focus is very much motivated by interest and a number of other things. You can look into this acronym Pinch. It's like ADHDers are motivated by like play and interest and novelty and competition and you know things like that. You aren't always in control of your focus, but it's not like you don't have it. (laughs) In fact, an ADHDer can like start a project and work for 12 hours and forget everything.
0: I did an episode on EMDR because that came up as something people were saying that works really well for me. I've had experience uh, with people trying to do CBT with me, and it's almost like I saw through it. So I'm like, don't even try that crap. I... I've
1: i never, never with the CBT ever. Okay. I cannot stand it. Yeah.
0: Okay. So yeah, I wanted to get your view on like types of uh, modalities that work really well for autistic folks.
1: That is something I want to study more of. I've never liked CBT and a lot of the like therapist friends of mine who are neurodivergent as well and towards not. I think we need more of a like holistic sort of approach. So like on the West Coast, where at least where I live, somatic therapy has become all the rage and that's great. However, me and some of my autistic therapist friends talk about how that also can be shaming because we frequently need to talk things out to understand them and we're not always super connected with what's happening for us somatically. And both she and I have talked about how we've internalized some shame around, I'm disconnected from my body, therefore, like, I'm not doing therapy, right? So I want to move away from that kind of one approach. Depending on how familiar you are with, like, somatic-type therapies, it's like, that can be very, like, talk therapies almost being, like, pushed aside as if it's not valuable. And that is not true, especially for autistic folks we often need to like talk things out to make sense of things. And that's okay. And that's great. CBT, I think is gaslighty to everyone, but, and it's not as evidence-based as people think. I have some articles on that. EMDR, I think is individualized. I'm trained as well and I've done it, but it can also be very overwhelming, overstimulating for folks. Depending on too, like if you are trying to reprocess sensory stuff or things that are like your natural your innate neurotype, and you don't know that you're trying to do that, I think that, that can create a lot of problems because you can't habituate. That kind of scares me that that can be happening.
0: For me, it like the traditional kind of Freudian therapy <laughs> seemed to work well because, I mean, I wasn't diagnosed at the time, but it was just like the amount of analysis seemed to work really well for me, but it would have been even better if, you know, my autism had been part of that
1: well you have to make sense of things. I think good trauma therapy is really about making sense of what you've been through and how to integrate that and move forward. So yeah, I think there's like a lot of different modalities and they need to be more neurodivergent affirming. And like, that's something I'm very passionate about. I'm just like, at this point I'm just really passionate about making my field more neurodivergent affirming. And I've learned that actually like a high percentage of people who even go to therapy in the first place are neurodivergent and, you know, being missed so much. So if I can like do anything, it would be to like help folks get rid of some of these stigmas than to like have a fuller picture of folks and how do we meet people where they are and not try to like fix something that is just innate and not needing fixing at all.
0: A huge thank you to Jennifer for being my guest. I have a couple more episodes lined up for May and then I'll be going on a bit of a trip the last uh, week or so of the month So I will aim for three episodes in May, but it might be two, just a warning. And I'll try to make up for that in June or July. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time. Bye. thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to leave a review and share this episode with a loved one. If you'd like to submit a question, please send in an email. You can find the email address and more in the show notes.